welcome to Radio Free Earth. It's uh, great to see you and, and meet you telephonically. And I'm here in the studio in Santa Rosa, and you are in beautiful uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, if I'm Correct. not mistaken. Awesome. Awesome. And so we met through a, uh, a mutual friend, one of my lifelong brothers, Greg Kime. And you all went to school uh, together, and he called me up and just said, uh, I really want you to meet my friend Brian. He's got an amazing story. And we dipped in a little bit. And uh, I guess let's just uh, take it from the top one more time. Uh, this is a really interesting, incredibly riveting story. Oh, now I'm watching you smoke weed. I might roll one up myself. Well, I think it goes with the show's theme, right? What's good for Dwayne? Well, you know, I, I agree. Got some, I got some great amnesia haze today. I'm smoking, and yeah. <gasps> wow. Okay, so now I got sure. a question. <clears throat> it, is that the amnesia haze, or is it that newer amnesia haze cross that's been going around? No, I. And the main way you would tell is the buds. The new amnesia haze. The buds are like fat, kind of indica looking, but it does have that nice haze taste. <sighs> Well, I find it's helpful if you grow it yourself. Then you can kind of you can okay. sort of phenotype the right one yourself, and then I mean that's really where I'm luckiest. You know, having a court order, I can sort of produce whatever I need to produce at whatever level I need to produce. You know, whether it's research or medical or whatever. So I've had a lot of opportunity to grow awesome. as many strains as I have been able to access and to phenotype and recross and. You know, I've even delved a little bit into the into stem cell regeneration of different strains, and I, you know, I'm I'm definitely an amateur wow. botanist for sure. You know, my degrees are are mostly in social science, but I've spent you know the better part of forty years, you know, in gardens. Last thirty with a, with a court exemption, and that's given me unique uh, unique abilities, and that's why I can get the right weed, medical grade, and uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate that way. I think. So is this Amnesia Haze uh, a cultivar that you've created yourself? Correct. Oh, okay, because all of a sudden there's been new uh, genetics down here in California labeled Amnesia Haze. That, like I said, they seem like a, an Amnesia Haze You cross. know, it's, it, you're going to probably be getting seeds and stuff, so you're going to be getting, obviously, sisters, sisters cousins, you know, and versions of, of the plants. You're not getting that, you know. I believe going right to the stem, getting the exact, stem clone you know and standardizing it you know the genetics in, in in advance if you're doing large you know large you know large same batch whatever you know but i mean cloning has uh -huh. you know been around for a very very long time you know it's it's close yeah. science it's not perfect you know but it's close but it, you know i think a lot of it is is trial and error you know even if you get a you know a five thousand amnesia uh, you know amnesia haze that you cross with you know, whatever, or you keep it pure, you're going to get a variety of phenotypes of that exact same variety. So it's, uh, you know, right. as, when you're a grower, you get that opportunity to really understand that, see it, you know, even test it, you know, on the site. I do, I like to do a lot of live resin extracts, right, you know, right with the live plants on yeah. the spot. And it gives me a real good idea of what my cannabinoid returns are and, you know, what kind of, you know, profiles I'll be looking at. And that, you know, is also very important you know when you're dealing with obviously high level cannabinoids for medical use you have to be way up there because the, the plant pro has to be perfect and has to be grown optimally to get you know enough extractable pro you know you know plant material right 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 and so ha they have a thing down here called the grow off have you ever heard of the grow off 
I'm not sure. Maybe. I think somebody mentioned it. Okay, so me. what they do is they, right, they give a bunch of, they give like 20, 30 different growers who are, however many enter the same genetic. Oh, I like it. And then it's so cool because you see all these people with the same clone genetic, but you see like 10 different kinds of weed. That's like, really the way you and, see Mother Nature at work. That's genius. I love that idea. Right? Yeah, and it's like uh, if your room's a little different, if your newts are a little different, you know, even just the difference in the vibe of the farmers, you're going to see all these different all these different results. Totally. So that's a pretty yeah, cool growing thing. Growing is something that so I really uh, enjoyed. It's, it's been a very therapeutic part of my journey for sure. And I, I, I probably spend too. as much time in a grow, in a, around plants as I do around people, sometimes much more time around plants than around people, to be honest. And one of my favorite thing about plants and dogs is they don't talk. <laughs> oh, my dog, my dog. Not, not good for this show. My but, dog can but, talk. My what's dog that? Can, oh, yeah? Zero Yoda. Nice. He is nice. <laughs> It's not like barky talk. He does... The Boston uh -huh. Terrier. Oh, like the you know, row, row, row. And he just, it's a conversation he has with you. It's just the cutest nice. thing. Yeah. He's a, also, a, he's got the Scooby Doo language. He's a rescue now. that uh, is a cannabis using dog, and his PTSD barely nice. exists as long as he's got access to edibles and, you know, cannabis in some way. He prefers edible nice. cookies. Nice. That's his thing. He loves, you know, you know. Really, he he doesn't do more than thirty yeah. milligrams, maybe at, at a time. No more than a hundred a day, um, and that's that's serious PTSD. Uh, out of the fourteen uh, rescues I've done, Yoda was uh, in a cage for three years of his life, so his PTSD was Aww. so difficult that I, I I started him on a much higher dose of cannabinoids, and I've worked it down to about thirty milligrams a day, or thirty milligrams a dose. Sorry, you know, one or two times a day, and it's you know he's. He's an incredible animal when he's in, when his endocannabinoid system wow. is working right. But uh, cages don't work for and any he, Is he a Boston Terrier? He's a Boston Terrier, yeah. Purebred Boston Terrier. He's, a, he's super awesome. Wow. He's my emotional support was he animal caged well. like a, I've got it, I've got his. Was he, was he caged up at one of those puppy mills? No, no. He's a, well, he's a purebred, okay. so he's got papers and all. He's very, they probably spent about 10 grand on him as a puppy. And it was just people with wow. more money than compassion and... They owned him, and they felt that they he he should be in a cage in the in the in the in the garage instead of in their home, and that's where he lived. Except for he never went for a walk, and they, they, it's just people people want to possess, right? They don't want to love; they want to possess. And so he's yeah. living his best life now. Thank gosh. Yeah, Good. we're he's thank yeah we God. love Yoda. He's he probably will end up coming out here for a second, jumping on camera to say hi. And but I don't know. He when he hears me on camera, okay. he tends to want to be a part of that he's he's a very uh, very he's like, what's going on dad very entertaining dog nice if i call him he'll come okay he will, he'll find a way so so i would i would describe you in our talk as a cannabis activist but even more of an uh, than just an activist you're a volunteer and you're out there on the streets making a difference um i i think probably the best thing for us to do to inform the folks that are going to be watching this would be to Start at the start with your story. It was a very interesting story. You said that you were um, orphaned. Well, yeah, <laughs> one of uh, you know Canada's first homeless. I would say you know been homeless my, my whole <laughs> life. Obviously, um, I did luckily eventually get uh, an adoptive family to uh, to to pick me up eventually and and you know be be the best they could be. But my family were were uh, disabled. My um, adoptive mother was blind. My adoptive aunt was in a wheelchair, and so 
I very wow. quickly learned more compassion back to them than to me. And so I, I really, my childhood wow. was more about loving and helping. And I, I was a Boy Scout very young. I had my, you know, my first aid, my, all my different merit badges. I'm my, obviously my Eagle Scout. I, so I did my, I, I, I started in Canada. So I was orphaned in the streets of Montreal and, and then eventually adopted, you know, a few, a few years later, you know, unfortunately I have a really good memory, so I can remember a lot of that time, which is, you know, not great remembering what it's like to be in rooms Intense. filled with, with, you know, cages or cribs, if people want to call them, but they were just cages we were kept in wow. basically. And that's, you know, where until you're adopted, that's where you would stay. And, you know, at that time during the sixties, that was basically how the unwanted were treated right and i learned very quickly about what it meant to to be part of the outcast part of the world the you know the meek whatever you want to call it and so yeah it it uh, yeah. It, it, uh, it made it difficult you know i ended up obviously um not being watched all the time like someone that is you know fully loved and cared for is and um you know i was sent to uh you know once i was you know not cute anymore i was sort of sent away obviously first sent away to military. Uh, so I, uh, again, lived in Quebec, uh, born and raised in Montreal. And then FLQ, the, the big terrorist takeover of Quebec happened in, in the early seventies. And my, you know, my, what, what exactly is what's FLQ? Oh, okay. So the, the, sorry, I'm a, I'm an, Amer I'm a stupid American. So you might have to back, the, backfill me um, some of this. The Francophone Libération de Quebec. So it was a, a, oh, what happened was is the, the, the pro-France so pro no, to do that. Movement? The Quebec government uh, is uh, is British, right? So it's uh, it's a it's a crown monarchy, and so Quebec is okay. is is one of the provinces that was able to hold back the British monarchy co uh, to some level and keep their independence. Quebec has their own actual constitution, not like the rest of Canada, a constitution act from Britain, you know, quote unquote. Um, so. The, um, they obviously really hated Quebec, and so during the late, late early 60s, they passed laws saying that if you were a Quebecer like me and you didn't speak bilingual, so you spoke, say, just French, you were not allowed to access okay. airport, taxi cabs, healthcare, EI, unemployment insurance. They just denied all of those rights, and uh, French Canadians obviously didn't, didn't really like that very much. And so they fought back, thank God. Uh, yeah, wow. this has happened in Canada a lot. Then, then, then of course, the, the native, the indigenous people have fought back and not long after with OCA, and they are, still are now with Truth and Reconciliation. But this government is like a repressive, sort of evil regime attitude about things. And so, um, you know, in a lot of ways, um, we, you know, you're, you're, you're always in a repressed sort of state here, unless you're part of the 1% elite or you know obviously you know related to the queen right and or the king sorry king now yeah yeah and it you know honestly it seemed far different uh it really seemed far different canada and their government and their freedom seemed far different until the recent uh covid pandemic outbreak and then all of a sudden justin trudeau and the canadian government really just seemed to switch on a dime and all of a sudden this completely different authoritarian uh, streak was revealed, but then in talking to you, it sounds like that's actually been the de facto mode of the government, and they've just had great PR. Well, it's not great PR. They control the media 100% here, so the media is only allowed to cover what they're told oh. to cover. There's no independent media. I mean, you can get on radio, talk show, live, but even those things, they're, they're guided questions, and 
it's it's very much like like a, 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 a you know like a, a totalitarian sort of system um the freedom of speech the freedom of anything is is given only by uh, a constitutional decree so that's basically the government of britain allowed canada to in during meech lake uh, accord and during the amendment of the of the british uh, north american act it was called to call the british okay. constitution act which is the 19 the act that says that canadian people living here not citizens living here get rights if a judge grants deems they deserve that right and there's no no the crown can't find a reason to not have to give you that right and it's just it's not an actual constitution it's a a way for the government's crown interest to go around rights and it's very effective uh even if you, i mean there's wow. only really a couple sections where um citizens uh, citizen groups have even been effective of affecting uh, uh, change and that's uh section seven and section 12 and um and the seven means for uh right to uh, autonomy of person right to choose health care and stuff in section 12 is right to not be subject to cruel and unusual punishment or treatment those are the only sections that um that that open for example open the door in canada for medical cannabis that it, it, it wasn't some kind of wow. government program or some kind of it was uh people like myself and even my own court case right so i mean we can get back i don't know if you want, we want to we're sort of skipping around here um, so I, I went. I, yeah, anyway, yeah, I mean, high school. I, I say let's I, let's let's go where the, the conversation FLQ leads. Basically, us. Yeah. sent us uh, the people I was that adopted me. The Carlisle family had basically they didn't speak French, and I didn't really have my my adopted brother and I didn't have great control of English yet. So they felt that okay. maybe we should uh, relocate to the United States, and so they applied as and they got us permanent resident alienship in America. Uh, because the FLQ crisis, wow. and so I, we were in '78. Wow. Oh, so you grew up speaking? You grew up speaking? I grew French up speaking then. French, then English, both. Right by by oh, age eight, okay. I was living okay. in the state of Vermont. So from one day I'm, wow. I'm in Montreal, the next day I'm in Vermont. My parents had been able to get because of this this takeover. This, there had been two assassinations of British dignitaries, and uh, these were British adoptive family. I remember, I had. Oh. so they were like, uh, you know, fear for life. Of course, the U.S. government let him in and skipped a bunch of different things, you know. And so huh. I, I did basically my high school uh, started in America. I started in uh, Randolph High School. And then, of course, by early teens, you know, um, a lot of the issues that, that, you know, being being not properly watched came up. And so my adopted family thought, well, we need to gotcha. send him away to school. And so I was sent back okay. to Canada to what I thought was just a school that had like a military sort of, you know, Boy Scout theme, but it was not. It was Robert Land Academy, and it was an actual military preparatory high school for the Kingston Military College just down the road in Ontario. And I didn't know any of this, and oh, I wow. show up at 15, and I'm now in basic training. And it was very difficult. I can assure you, it's my, my 16th I bet birthday, that was shocking. I completed the 7th. Yeah, on my 16th birthday, I completed the 75-mile fall exercise, which is mandatory for to to become an officer. And I ended up was granted two stripes, so a second lieutenant, or in Canada, we're called a double barman. So by before I was when I was 16 years old, I was double barman. Crazy, right? Like, wow, you know. And I didn't really. Wow. And so once I got some some I got the I got my stripes. Was able to go on a vacation, and I just fled. 
I'm I'm out of here. I'm I'm oh. I don't want to be in Canada, let alone be in an any army. And I fled. I crossed the border. I get to, I get to Niagara Falls Bridge, and I I say, look, here's my social security number. I'm an American. They're holding me hostage up there. And let me out of this crazy nut school. <laughs> of course, I don't realize my parents really kind of were wow. in it. Well, my Dutch parents they kind of were in on this sort of keeping me away from from Vermont. So they very quickly found another school, which said, oh, this one's even better. This one has boating and swimming and it's up in maine and oh yeah it looks great doesn't it and oh. so that's the next school i was sent to was elon where greg and i went to school right. together and i don't know if he's told you about what elon was like or you watch some of the extensively the, the, extensively, the documentaries but not only about that, it Brian, a lot right that's what i was yep that's what i was going to say is i actually happen to have End several of the road documents different generations who went to Elon and told me horror stories. And then Tristan, my wife, Tristan, and I watched the documentary and it's just, it's mind blowing thinking back on all of these kids who got sent away to Elon and schools like that. And what was actually going on, you know, their parents are thinking that they're going to be sent away to be raised into more productive members college. of society or what, what have you. Right. But well, they instead it's they were just getting like ready this, for college, right? Right, but it was like a, a a a criminal proving ground, and and also kind of somewhere for older criminals to victimize these children. Well, it was it was a little bit more than that. See, as a social scientist, right, in PhD at the time, right, as I am now, I understand what they were uh -huh. all doing. They were all MA and PhD students, grad students, looking for what we call that was called uh, uh, postmodernist uh, uh, um, youth therapy care treatment system. It actually was part of that era of pedagogy of research. So all of those, most of those people okay. working at Lawn, Lawn, all of the different ones, were working on their MA or PhD in social, social science, sociology, social work. And so we were part of that experiment that they used uh, for oh. their papers that they published Oh, many of them over and over and over again for years, right? This went on and they brought in many wow. of the, yeah. So we were, we were social experiments and the gov the government's people like myself who didn't have rich family, we were sent there by state paying for us. Other people who had ex rich families or whatever, you know, 35,000 a year they were spending to send their kids to this school thinking these kids are going to be ready for college, right to go. They're going to be well-modeled. And I mean, you've got to keep in mind, Elon had been running since the late 50s. People like Jimi Hendrix wow. went to one of these programs. People like Don Henley. What? Oh, you didn't? <laughs> yes. Jimi Hendrix no. himself. Wow. Yeah. Another left-handy like me plays Stratocaria, Stratocaria, like, Stratocaria, like I do, right? He was in Elon. Nice. He had to deal with that. And he had to deal oh. with years of, of, of what we call psychological psychotherapy using LSD to deal with the suffering he went through. I myself have had to use wow. extensive psychological psychotherapy to to deal with not just the lawn, but deal with a whole you know youth issue that I never was able to deal with as a youth because I was busy trying to survive. You know, for example, here's a yes. great example that my adopted mother told me on her near her deathbed. Now, all my both both my adopted parents uh, died not long ago, so I lost them both, unfortunately, and. But on on near her deathbed, Sorry. she told me and my 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 wonderful bride the story of me when I was four years old, and my brother adopted brother who they adopted from another from someone else was five years old and how in a I was only dressed in a diaper in Montreal on the West Island 
I took my brother by the hand early in the morning because nobody was watching us at, at all during the day. And I just went walking, looking for the train station to meet, find my parents after they got off the train. And I was able to find it. It was about five kilometers away. I was able to find it. Four years old. I could barely read yet. And I still, but I could read. I was quite intelligent. I mean, I had force. I had to learn this yeah. stuff. And I was able to find a track. And then I just walked the track all the way. And they got off the train at 3.30 that afternoon. And I was standing there with my brother holding his hand. And they couldn't believe it that I, I, you know, that just showed nobody was watching me first and foremost, but that I was able to survive that far and even protect my brother who couldn't even speak yet. And I could speak and I could read and I was already very advanced for a four-year-old, which you kind of have to be when you're an orphan. Being an orphan can be a blessing. Like look at Moses, right? You look at some of what orphans have done in the world and by being yeah, orphaned, it, it can push you to levels that a normal person that's loved, that's attached, that they will never strive for because they were never, you know, given that broken part as a youth and being so broken yeah. and then so many years to heal, it enables you to evolve to these levels where, yeah. as you described, I'm out on the sidewalk doing, doing Jesus's works out there, handing out food and medicine free to dying people 24 hours a day. At least I do eight hours a day myself. I can't do 24 because I, I, you know, being a chemo patient, I can't do so much, which was also made it very difficult growing up in these schools, being a chemo patient, because I've had this illness since I was a baby, because I've had the, all of the symptoms on and off since childhood. But of course, nobody cared to even look into that. I remember as a, a very, very young, about five or six, having such a bad flu, double pneumonia, I, I remember dying and coming back several times in bed and just fever. And they told me my fevers were going 105, 106. I was in it. And obviously I was, I mean, I was, oh my God. It, it's just, it just show it. But by all this torture and all this brokenness, it has strengthened my body, strengthened my immune system, strengthened my ability to to be compassionate and to, to not look at you know stigma at all i don't you know and yes, you know in and over the years to help my fellow man and you know and unfortunately like all those before me that choose to not follow God, man's law but follow the law of of humanity of nature of love we i've been persecuted for it right as you know right the yes. first time 2003 sorry 2001 you know uh, we were told by the federal government in 2000 this program will allow for federal health canada exemptions to grow and use marijuana cannabis so we all went okay yes sir. we went to our doctors right all of us chemo patients said come on fill out our forms we all sent those forms in thinking wonderful here we go we're safe <coughs> No more yep. harassment, no more investigation. Less than a year later, all of us had police show up at our door. Investigating oh, us. Do, they did that on and off with cannabis programs here they, as well. In their, plea, in their particulars, they have written, they had applied for a right to grow and possess cannabis. Therefore, they are trying yep. to traffic and them and their physician must be charged for, and they investigated, at least 82 of us, I know for sure, were charged that year for trafficking 
Our doctors were threatened that year for trafficking, and we had to. I ended up having to go and win a court order by 2003 so that I couldn't be investigated, harassed, trespassed, my weed stolen. Any of that could never happen again. So I would never need a license or permission that a court had given me permission once and for all. Like Peter McDermott, like Peter, like like Peter McWilliams, like like all of the you know original cancer patients back in the day were given by courts. That's what yeah. I was given, and that's what's allowed and protected me all these years. And that's the drum I've been trying to beat for everyone else. Because you're right, I'm not okay, just so- a, I'm not just an activist. I'm what I call a triple A. So I'm an advocate. I'm an afflicted, and I'm an activist. So I've have to I've had to be all three things for myself, run my own, you know, cancer marathon, so to speak, while surviving cancer, while being persecuted for having cancer, and so on and so on. So I'd like to set the scene a little bit for for folks listening. We were getting into the origin, um, and this is really interesting because okay, so you were an orphan. Uh, you went on to get multiple degrees and have been working to provide cannabis to folks with cancer, to the homeless population in Vancouver, to the mentally ill, as well as food resources as well. And one of the things I really want to mention is that this is very interesting. And as you as you spoke of, people who have early childhood traumas, it seems like there's not a lot of middle ground. They really either end up going into the mentally ill and or uh, self-medicating with, with, with hard drugs you know, kind of homeless indigent space, or they become uh, model citizens and really exceptional, <laughs> exceptional citizens. And it, it's very interesting how, uh, you know, what, what it just makes me wonder on what are the genetic and epigenetic factors regarding the trauma that caused some to break and become nearly seemingly unrepa- unrepairable and others to, to excel at life. Well, it's funny you say that because that's something that's one of the, that's one of the, one of the what we would call the ethnographic parts of my research that I'm doing currently, right? And I'm I'm into this probably. Uh-huh. I mean, full time since at least 2001, right? Full time. So all of these marginalized populations, cancer, um, you know, epilepsy, even pediatric groups, homeless groups, drug addiction replacement groups, all of these groups I've been dealing with and working with hand to hand um, for years. And I think um, my research uh, has what I've been, you know, by by ethnographic, which means me speaking face to face with these people daily, sometimes several times a day, I'm finding a huge correlation between those that have been sexually abused as a child in childhood or youth and homelessness. In fact, I think a study needs to be put together and done because I'm positive it is it is highly significant. You know, if we were to uh, uh, relationships that I've seen, highly significant. In fact, almost I don't want to say 100 percent because science just doesn't have that. But it's in the. the I was about to say the same thing, though, like there's there seems like there's almost a one to one correlation. And it's it's because psychological abuse, sexual abuse or severe trauma. Because the way sex abuse is treated, not necessarily by the courts, but by the social systems that support it. Right. I know this myself because I was a victim of sex assault when I was 12. 
So I know exactly what it's like to be targeted, to be one of those victims, and then to be the embarrassment of the uh, of, of being charged and having to you know not be allowed to live in that town anymore. Yet I still had to finish my high school there, which so Alon did allow me to do two high school diplomas so I could graduate from Randolph Union High School and Pine Edge High School in Maine. So because they knew that I actually wanted to go to university, there were most. I, and most people at Elon didn't they didn't really care about that because they were they were they were yeah. sent there by very wealthy parents. And so they had trust funds that they could determine I had nothing like that, right? And so I, I had no choice but I had to find, you know, and Elon did some knew that I, I was in that circumstance. So they used me uh, in a lot of ways as um, as an uh, as an unpaid and then paid staff. They would make me, I mean, I had right. a lot, I mean, I was fully trained in the military, so that's Krav Maga, Jiu-Jitsu, wrestling, and then I had been doing martial arts since I was seven, so they used that fact, you know, even though I was, I was sick, no one, they, nobody knew yet, but I, I still was, and I still work out to this day, right, I still am in very, very good shape uh -huh. for 53, like, yeah. uh, this month, and and my, nice. you know, and um, in Elan, they would basically, the few of us that were trained fighters, they would use us as a threatened tool against the other students. If you don't do what you're told, we're going to put Brian, or there was another fellow that was a, a junior Olympic boxer, we're going to put those two in the ring with you and beat you up. And there had eventually were deaths. Oh, jeez. There were deaths. There were, there actually had been, yeah, there were people that had, they had put in the ring with, not me, I would, long after I was gone, but someone who didn't know how to control their their power properly and broke the guy's neck. Oh no! And so there that that was it was common. It, it was very common. They yeah, it was very scary too to know. That, the more I hear about this school, the more I just wonder at how none of those none of those people ever got. Well, uh, Joe Ritchie, the owner, died, and when when you die in test day like okay. that, there's no one to go after, right? You gotcha. know, people are trying, yeah, but I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Did they did they break up the school after he died? No, no, they kept it going until the state oh, okay. basically did an investigation on it uh, because there'd been so many calls and people had died and then someone had from the school had murdered someone and then there'd been a body go missing that they couldn't find Jesus, and the media just dude. kept building and uh, pressure pressure in the state just basically I think just pulled their license and it uh, you know because the state didn't want to have liability on themselves so they you know just you know removed the liability. I mean, somebody probably could sue on what's called the historical abuse case, right? I mean, it's it's a real drag, you know, having a law degree, especially when, you know, that's one of the areas they went after me for, right? You know, I had... So so can you give us, uh, what was your trajectory out of high school? Um, you hold multiple degrees. Uh, how, how did that... Uh... What was your first stop on on the so college? So I, I graduated Robert um, Alon School and Pine End School in February third, nineteen eighty nine, and I'd already been accepted um, to uh, at the time the best kinesiology school in Canada. Um, I looked into America, but I couldn't find. I had no funding, and I couldn't find a grant. I didn't know I was disabled yet, and gotcha. I couldn't find a grant or anything to get me in. I could get apply, I could get into Harvard, I could get into Yale, but I couldn't get a grant for it. Cornell even offered me a, a seat. Yeah. So that's when I, wow. yeah, well, I graduated two high schools. And Canada, Canada, you have free college, well, right? Well, you you Is have to be able to to apply properly for grants. It's not like Europe yet, but it should okay. be. But yeah, they do have grants, and and that's how I did got all my schooling. Obviously, through grants, I learned. 
I learned the grant process. I learned how to write grants and I learned how to, and it's every semester oh, okay. you have to reply and apply, apply. And I, you know, that's how I was able to go through all that 10 years of university wow. I've done so far. Right. And so that's wow. how I was able to do that. Right. And in America, I didn't have any, I had no, I had, I mean, the funny thing is in Elan, um, Joe Ritchie had offered to pay for my schooling, but then he died, I said. And then one of his other business partners was like this guy named Dr. Dr. or Father Bob or Dr. Robert H. Alanak III, who had a PhD in psychology and a PhD in theology and a PhD in um, medicine uh, or an MD, sorry. So he had three. He was one of the first double or triple PhDs that I got to know personally that said, Brian, you, you should get a few degrees. You just you got the same brain I do. Go do. And that's when I went, OK, OK, I get it. Right. No one before that had ever said that. My adoptive family had just said, just you should be working at a gas station, you know, throw away kids like you we should be lucky to have a job. And and it, it did work. It worked through my psyche pretty good. You know, and I, I worked. It took. It took a lot. I mean, I was even doing psychedelics then, looking, walking in the fields of Vermont, finding, you know, Cubensis, Commonus, and I was eating them at night and then still going to school the next day. And I was already understanding, nice. as you know, sort of my pre-shaman beings had already started speaking through the plants to me. And, you know, so I... Oh. And I, I knew, somehow inherently knew that I needed not just cannabis, but I needed, you know, other psychedelics for the existential part yeah. of what I was dealing with physically, regardless if they didn't come up with a test till 85. I was still dealing with it all through my childhood. And, you know, it's and it became something that I my body, I, I'm, I'm physically very, very fortunate. I don't know if I my body epigenetically did it on its own. But I'm one of the 30% population that ha that are called long-term non-progressors. It means that for when it comes to some viruses, we don't get sick from them. They don't affect us. They don't give us a viral load. And that we don't know why that is. Gotcha. I mean, nobody knows exactly, but we just know that's the science. And so for the 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 the, the viral cancer that I've had all my life. I've been, my body has been able to hold it back right up until I was in my 30s. And then, you know, once then died, then, you know, I might, might you know, luck, my a physician did a test and found that there was a virus there. It was undetectable, but still there. And that's when they start you on these these meds, which are all a type of mustard gas. Right. And so you have to. And, then and you were diagnosed with. And you were diagnosed with uh, HIV. Well, it's, it's cancer, right? It's HIV as... cancer, right? Right. I mean, the vi you will eventually die from Carposi's sarcoma if the virus takes you. Otherwise, you'll die from uh, environmental issues, not eating right, or you'll die from the pills, which, as I explained, were all invented during the 1940s by testing on um, Jewish cancer patients in Krakow and Dachau. That's where they wow. learned about this stuff somehow working on us. They didn't know how. But that's when they realized, because they were just testing mustard gas on poor people, and some of the ones with cancer got better. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. Oh and that's God. where the whole cancer industry came from. And so for all the 40s and 50s and, 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 and early 60s, these drugs that they invented, they then eventually found they were just so toxic for the body, they stopped using it in regular cancer patients. And they, they or, called, or, and they finally, weird, they orphaned all those drugs. Weird how that works. And now these huge, <laughs> in the last decade or two, huge companies like Gillette, for example, pharmaceuticals, have bought these orphan patents, have tweaked the molecule one wow. tiny bit, 
and are reselling them back at the most right. expensive drug in the world. Yep. HIV drugs. I mean, yep. I don't know if you watch any of the, the movies about it, you know, Dope Sick or Pharma Bro or I, I haven't oh, I haven't watched the movies, but I, I learned about uh, chemotherapy and AIDS drugs through my friend Paul Burnett, who was a COO for a medical supplies go. company. And that's and, uh, the re- and here in and Canada, pharma, it's pharma it's district. political. Yeah. In America, there's wow. America's great. They have they have constitution, state and and federal, and it was wonderful. So that's something yep. I got to learn all through high school. Right, I learned all about America, freedom and law, and the revolution they had, and it made so much sense. And, and I grew up in Quebec, so that's another place where revolution worked. And, da, da, da. and then all of a sudden, I, 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 as I said, I went back to school in New Brunswick, and that was common law, and it was freezing cold. There was icebergs out in the... And I'm like, I am not going to school here. So I just went into the admissions office, and I said, okay, nice campus, but I'm not freezing to death. Where is it sunny here? Where can I surf? Where can I, where can I, where can I surf in Canada? And they said, and they said okay. well, Vancouver. And I said, really? They said, yeah, okay. Vancouver has surfing or skiing almost all year round. And I'm just shocked. I didn't never even heard of this, right? They're like, it's like San Francisco. Oh, right on. Okay. All right. So I, I basically just contacted the biggest university they had here. At the time, it was UBC and SFU. And I said, I, you know, here's, here's my, you know, here's where I've been accepted. I've been two high school diplomas. I'm flying out there. I want to accept, I want you to accept me into your faculty, and I'm going to start attending school there. And uh, and it wasn't easy, obviously. I, I, luckily, at the time, I didn't have any diff, health diagnoses, so I was able to. It's funny when you're not diagnosed with anything; every seat's available. When you think you're healthy and you can right. do stuff, everything. But the moment yeah. you're in a in a health minority group, only certain seats are available, and that's how it is in undergrad, which made it tough to get through associates and bachelor's degrees. But then, in grad schools they go out of their way to not allow seats to be available for people that have any real health condition. And for obvious reasons to most other people, you're going to die anyway. What do you, what do you need it for? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how old they got. Wow. I, that was another <laughs> shocking thing I learned from you. I, uh, I was just blown away by that. So, so you got to UBC and, and work still, uh, and, and was the reason you were undiagnosed, so when you were diagnosed, was it because of illness or just kind of a random blood um, incident? No, I, um, I had been really, maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go close the window. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay, no, all good. Wow, he has a garbage truck right outside. Sorry about that. So, all good. Um, I had other... I mean, I in around '94, I was having symptoms that um, were very much similar to cancer cancer symptoms, and my cannabis use okay. went up massively from then. In fact, in uh, that okay. was the month or the year when I a specialist actually, I I, I suffered a massive um, head injury, um, which I got from that. As a result, oh, I got glaucoma, and so my ophthalmologist. Had uh, you know had sent me to uh, to the first place that was open at the time, the BC Compassion Club, open in '96 in Vancouver, and I was because cannabis is a well-known treatment for the pressure intraocular pressure relief from of well, glaucoma in, in places that have science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But we're we're we have to really. I guess we got we got to really clear something up here in Canada as a common law. Sure. 
science and medicine and sometimes even basic reason are not necessarily part of the dialogue in anything, whether it's research, social science, or specifically law. And the rest of the world thinks that's, would think that's kind of crazy, but in, in, I think we crazy. Uh, Canadians have allowed stigma of th certain illnesses, specifically HIV cancer, uh, to uh, allow other rights to be ignored and allow for life in jail for someone that has this illness in Canada. And it's, um, it's a very scary place for, for people that don't know the law. Um, I'm very fortunate because, you know, I, you know, you know, I learned very quickly once they had, by 2003, they had, you know, they had put me on the first ARVs or it was a 2002 uh -huh. and those, and they basically had given me six months to live. And it was because of the ARVs, right? <laughs> the ARVs, the, was that AZT? The ARVs. Well, they were there. AZT is the one is part of the okay. formula that we're still eating today. Today's okay. version is called. Oh, that was the multi-pill formula. Well, they, 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 they've been giving us various here, here. mustard gas com, com, combinations for a long time. The current one I'm on is called Victarvi. Uh, the previous one I'm on was called Truvada. And you, you go ahead and Google it, the Truvada settlement. I've yeah, heard Truvada something. Truvada has yeah, there was a... actively, their drug has actively killed 35 million uh, Canadian, uh, North Americans so far. Um, they are in settlement for this drug uh, that they knew, TDF. They knew it was deadly. And uh, I was on it myself for about 15 years. Yep. Um, I'm part of wow. that settlement, waiting for my lawyers to get me my piece for that one. Um, yeah, because somehow my liver and kidneys still work somehow. And I'm, yeah, it, it, it literally killed 30, 34 million people. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, a small wow. group that are not dead from that dangerous drug that they, the, that Gillette patented and, and then repatented another version of it at the same time that was not dangerous, but didn't give that out to anybody. And they just wrote the old patent because once the old patent was up, then they're going to get the new patent because it's about getting they're paid. Oh, my God. So the whole thing, it's all capitalism. Yeah, it's they about, allow capitalism in yeah. dying people's lives. And just like they allow it in school. It's bullshit. Because, you know, that's another thing. Yeah. Is school is really difficult for someone, you know, a cancer patient. People think, oh, yeah, cancer patients get to school all day, every day. Really? How many seats are available for cancer patients at universities? No one ever thinks about that. I, yeah, you said... Well, zero I, that, my court case, away. I had to, I, never I had contemplated to, you it, know, yeah. I applied to get into law school once I had done enough undergrad, actually. So let's, we got to back up a little bit. So I get to BC sure. here and I'm, I, and uh, very quickly I became a parent and I realized that I need work. I can't just go to school without work. And so I got into the, the, um, asset recovery and civil law business. It was called bailiffing okay. in America. That's a criminal thing. Here in Canada, the guy who does that bailiff job is called a deputy sheriff. But we have something okay. in Canada called, or had, civil bailiffs. And it's a licensed job, but with a bond. You have to have a bond, 30000 a year bond, 10000 a year bond for yourself in order to be able to practice law in specific areas for money for people. And that's what I got into. And so basically... These wow. certain areas of law, civil, mostly money, assets, debt, you know, forfeiture, enforcement, all those areas. And I and I basically my job was to, 
you know, meet with the client, prepare the documents, file the documents, serve the documents, and then plead the case for them. And then once I had judgment, then enforce the judgment plus interest, plus my fees, and then everyone got paid at once. And I did that very, very effectively for years and years and years. I was licensed from the, from about 1992 on. And about 1999, you know, and I, by this point, I had was raising about six kids at the time. I had four of my own biological wow. and the other the other five wow. adopted. And that's sorry, that's all wow. together. So at the time I had four, four biological, two adopted. I've actually adopted, adopted oh. three more now. Um, and wow. um I was, uh, you know, working, looking after these kids. I was doing my schooling, you know, uh, part time, two classes a month, two classes a semester. So keeping, you know, keeping working towards the degree, but you know, as well, I had to, you know, look after, raise a family, and I, I was, and I did that with this bailiffing job. It was wonderful, but by about 1999, the lawyers in BC who are decided that they're losing a big chunk of money in this area, and they didn't like that. Okay. So they got the oh, government of BC gotcha. to amend what was called originally the Barrister Solicitor Act that had bailiffs license to work and stuff. And they amended in something okay. called Legal Profession Act, where no one who wasn't a member of the BC Law Society itself couldn't practice law, regardless of their degree, credential, experience. And so they put me and gotcha. millions of other people like me out of work overnight, instantly. Really difficult, so I basically, luckily myself, I went into full-time university. Was able to get by that. I was able to get enough more money to actually support my family for a bit. Wow. Luckily for me, plus it also pushed me now to get into law school, right? But everyone else who was like me, they just went bankrupt and probably homeless, sitting on the side of the road now, because that's how a, a, you know when there's no constitution, there's no rights. You know when it comes to anything to do with corporations and corporations or corporations. They're all what's called strict liability situations where there's no rights can be attained by a court. So if the government makes a change right. regulatory, it's just that's just the way it is. Just business. Nobody doesn't matter how much you lose. And it, you know, I learned that very quickly. And that's when I realized that I need to know law. You know, if I'm gonna live here and work, even just work and live or go to school, I need to know the law as well as the lawyer and to be able to think like a lawyer. And so that's when I started to push into law school. My first hurdle for law school was unfortunately the LSAT. Every North American has to have an LSAT um, number yep. in order to apply for law school. That's rule one of every law school in Canada. So um, LSAT doesn't allow disabled people. <laughs> they don't have any of any type of, of waiver at the time. They didn't have anything for people needing medications or breaks of any kind during the six to eight hour test. And, you know, and I'm, wow. I'm on chemo. I have to do medical cannabis quite regularly. I, I don't have the luxury of just yeah. stopping and then, you know, and they knew this. I'd already had, you know, I'd already been, you know, exempt for years by this point, right? And everyone knew and, you know, the media had covered the whole thing. You know, I'm one of the first few Canadians allowed. And, and so I had no choice, but I had to file a human rights case, BC Human Rights case against the Law School Admissions Council which is in actually in Pennsylvania, incorporated in Delaware. <laughs> and I had to sue them in a BC human rights court. First of all, to prove jurisdiction because they were doing work in BC that then they have to follow BC yeah. law, not Ontario, Delaware law. So I was able to win that jurisdiction. Okay. It took me a year and a half to win that jurisdiction. And then I had to then put them before the courts under human rights law to prove that 
this was discriminating against my type of disability specifically. And yeah. so obviously I won. And then I, and then I had, then the case I had filed against UBC because they wouldn't give me a seat. I, they uh, negotiated with me because I'd won against the LSAT. So they kind of went, okay, you're beating them in America. I guess you're going to beat us here. Like you're wrong. They were wrong. I'm not doing anything like, come on. Right. I, why are you keeping someone like me out? I got the credentials, got the degree. I got the, yeah. I got, I got. The, you just actively want to, you just want to apply to school to actively help well, yourself. I others. thought that if I had a law degree, then at least I could keep practicing law at least even not civil necessarily. Yeah. But I was already involved with these constitutional challenge cases for patients that were charged facing life in jail. Right. First American ones. Right. Right. I was involved with all of the reefer refugee cases from California and Oregon. And as they fled to Canada during the 90s to, to stay out of their third strike in America, I was a part of those wow. cases, helping them get up here, helping them stay here or helping them win their case so they could return without facing life in jail for their third strike with medical cannabis. Right. And that, that was something that I and I obviously made a lot of enemies. I ended up. Um, I'm, I was allowed to get licensed immigration law for a while, so I did did actually their immigration as well for them. And so I really upset the Canadian government because, you know, it's a policy that Americans, you know, since Vietnam are not allowed to be refugees here. And I was violating that longstanding principle with these with these people and uh, successfully. And uh, I can show you all the references they gave me. They all, you know, feel that I yeah. saved them. One of the fa one of the fellows, Steve Cubby. Um, he he ran for president uh -huh. a few times. I know of him. And uh, he he was the foreword writer in a few of Terrence McKenna's books. And he would we would sit and oh, talk about cool. Terrence for for hours and hours at a time on psychedelics together. And he was trying to elevate me to that level, you know. And I you know it took it's taken me a long time to get anywhere close there, but I I'd like to believe I'm I'm close to that level now. And in fact, uh, a month ago I got to meet Dennis McKenna, his brother. So, yeah, oh, so cool. that, you know, felt like, a, you know, a full circle there, you know, and um, yeah, but um, yeah, so, um, so here I am, un so, unbustable so plants, but so this government just, you know, they, they couldn't stand that I was helping people with their cannabis, uh, cannabis case. Let's, sure. let's back up. Hold on one second. Let's back sure. up just a tiny bit. So you had been right. diagnosed and then you were using cannabis. When did you start, when did you move from using cannabis to growing cannabis? So, so, so I started using cannabis medically in 94, right? My doctor had written okay. me a prescription letter to the Beast Compassion Club in 94. So that's when I started okay. legally de facto or what's called, you know, constitutionally protected medical use. So that's how long. Right, and then 03 was so, when you- So 94, uh, I started using, as I said, for glaucoma and other symptoms, uh -huh. right? And then by 2001 is when I got diagnosed with the HIV cancer, right? Okay. And uh, and also okay. charged that same year for applying for a, court, a marijuana exemption from Health Canada. And so the court case from that, I was victorious in getting the charges dismissed, of course, but also getting the right. court to protect my continued medical use of it and to even give me all of the seized items back and damages paid to me. So ma making a big okay. declaration that, you know, this guy's medical, leave him alone. And it's not, there's no time gotcha. limits on his medical because they assumed how long could he live anyway, right? You know, this is, you know, and that's how, I, that's how they think, right? It's fine. You know, it's there. They can think that way in their mind, if you know, because these medications will only take you this far. And it's true. But I live on 
thousands of milligrams of plants and psychedelics every day. I'm on a on a type of medication that they don't have any pedagogy research in, but I have decades of research in on my on other people and then on myself also. So it's I I mean it's a total different I mean my specialists are very supportive of treating me like like you know like a colleague, not like a patient. You know, even though they know I don't have my MD, but they know that I was put in solitary during my PhD degree. So they know that I was pretty close to being there in fact i did for the university of fraser valley write a phd paper that was published in the journal of Ac of criminology of canada so i technically have wow. a phd they just these universities in canada won't even acknowledge a master's degree or, P or grad de or undergrad degree level degree in cannabis research science pedagogy oh, nothing like wow. that they won't allow it they allowed That's me crazy. the undergrad as a criminologist because I'm a drug expert. So they allowed the connection there only. And it took me years to force the, the Association of Criminologists to accept that because they're so against any critical person like myself becoming degreed because now we're part of the dialogue legitimately. And that's why while I was in my grad degree, they stuck me in solitary for being having cancer and kept me in solitary so sure. long that I couldn't even contact my my faculty and say, please don't you know hold it against me. I'm 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 not ignore, I'm not skipping school because what happens is it defunds you. You can't just skip attending grad school. Oh, funding. you lose your grant money then. They take uh, your funding away, so I'm stuck right. waiting. I'm suing to get, to get my funding back and or my millions for what they did to me, and then I can you know at least finish a, a, my PhD. You know although. They should be offering it to me for the PhD I've already published. It's outrageous right. that they treat real cannabis experts like we are not experts. Even though we've done the academic work and the lived work and the decades of research work, they still treat us like, no, nah, it's just la li la, woo woo. So it's fucking science. People, and it's science based on alchemy have, that's been going on for thousands of years. Exactly. I'm not recreating what? anything. I'm just passing the science along to me and others. That's it. Well, well, I think those those of us who have contacted cannabis and psychedelics and are fairly untamable uh, present a problem. You know, the people that are really into turning these things into marketable products, microdosing them, and in any way, shape, or form, blunting the revolutionary aspect of them tend to seem to be kind of uh, integrated into the system and those that have more outside of the norm views and Malcolm X used to call uh, those people it's much di more difficult to find a space in the system Malcolm X because I mean we, we would take it down so why would you why would you let somebody in if they're going to destroy your house uh, you right? just look to a previous <laughs> social uh, civil rights movement and Malcolm X would have said yeah. those individuals are handmaidens of prohibition that's it yes and they are put there intentionally, accidentally, or financially to keep that prohibitionist of freedom mentality forward moving, loaded and, and ready with billions of dollars, always moving the dialogue that way a little bit. And unless the few of us are up there talking, pushing, suing, pushing, suing, yes. the dialogue just keeps going, 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 going. Because we don't have, a, in Canada, we don't have a constitution. 
We have a constitutional act that is only good for us if the courts allow us to have it, which means that if you apply for your constitutional rights in a civil or criminal case, mm -hmm. the court can say, man, there's a rights violation here, no question. But the, this act has two sections, section one and section 33, written into it that says the government can but for not give those breach remedies. So even finding the right, the government has the right to opt out of granting a remedy. The Constitution does not That's grant insane. like a real Constitution should. It is a restrictive covenant of Britain. And only the few of us... Because Canada is a commonwealth that's not actually an independent Well, we're not country. allowed to be an independent country until right. we have a constitution right. of the people, by the people, and for the people. Yep. And I learned all this stuff very clearly in a constitutional country. <laughs> so they're not fooling right. me up here. <laughs> right. Right. No, for real. So when did you start, when did you start growing in B.C.? Okay, um, so and 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 and, and oh, go ahead. My God, I mean, I started attending the 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 cannabis day rallies in 1995. In fact, I remember okay. being a bailiff that day in the Vancouver Supreme Court, and the first rally was held on the far side steps of that courthouse I was working in, in my full suit, three piece nice. suit, and. And I, I knew it. And as soon as I was done my day, my pleadings that day, it was around two, two thirty. And as I knew they were going to start at at, at four twenty, because they were going to have the first four twenty smoke out. And I and I was nice. I worked at around three o'clock. I came one. I went. I went and had a drink, um, food or whatever, right across the street at Bellagio's. And I came back and I and I wandered into the crowd. And I'm everyone else is dressed like hip hippie. And here I am in a really nice work suit. I had just worked, you know. My, you know, I loved my job. I was really good at it. I helped a lot of, I want, I never lost a case and no one paid me to lose. I was that honorable about what I did. And they took that away from British Columbians. British Columbians have to now pay to lose. Lawyers are not duty. And people like me that I've tried to over the years help people for free. Anyway, 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 the 420, let's just get back to that. So I'm standing in the, in the middle of, okay. and everyone is going, hi officer, hi officer, hi officer. And I'm like, mm -hmm, sure. mm -hmm. <laughs> and everyone's just, I swear I'm not the man. And it comes 420, and everyone's, no one's lining up, and everyone's looking around, and I have a pocket full of nice joints, really good stuff I was growing at the time, and I just pull one out and light it up. No one else, has, no one else, everyone was scared shitless, because there was a group of cops all the way around, That's obviously, hilarious. and I just start puffing okay. on this joint, and people are like, what, where, what, and they just, it just inspired everyone and i handed that joint out took another one lit that and so like nice. i kind of be began the rallies in vancouver while working with the courts at the same time in fact for the nice. next couple rallies nice. i wore my glaucoma in one eye is way worse than the other so for years i wore an eye patch and so what i did is i sewed a pot leaf medical pot leaf onto the eye patch and so I would wear that at the events so my colleagues in court would know it was me, even if the media interviewed me. And there's a shitload of art media oh about me. God. And they just called me Reverend Brian, Reverend Brian. Nobody, they didn't know it was, nice. you know, I was Brian called. But I was also, a, see, I was a bailiff under a different legal alias. You're given a professional oh. alias as a bailiff. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's a very dangerous job, right? So you're licensed by the Attorney wow. General as a different alias. 
So I was licensed as J.P. Bailey or Jean-Paul Bailey. That was the name I, yeah. So nobody knew me as Brian at all in any form, right? So I was able to keep this double life up until 99, 2000. And they threw, and then of course, after that, I, I, you know, I was working really in different areas. I also have a degree in finance, right? And I worked, I worked with Prime America for years. And then in, in the mid to uh, about 10, 2010, no, about 2008 or so, Investors Group, a big one in, in, in Abbotsford, sort of approached me and asked if I'd like to broker for first one broker, and then I ended up broking for five brokers at once. So I was managing a quite wow. a large portfolio, you know, throughout that time. So I didn't really need the consulting money or legal money of any kind. So people would come to me and say, you know, can you help me with my case? They, they get, like one guy called me up, I can show you the, the letter, he called me up middle of the night, say, I'm standing on the bridge, in, uh, Hamilton Bridge, they told me tomorrow I have to do nine years in jail and I, and I, and I have cancer and I'm, I'm not doing it. So if you have something you can tell me that'll say that, that I, that'll stop me from jumping, please tell me, Brian. And I kind of said, Jesus. okay, I will do up the pleading for you. I'll have it done for you by nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Just, just take it to the court with you when you get there. And I sat all night typing up the guy's pleading for him for Ontario Provincial Court. And yeah, he took it in. And of course it was a charter challenge based on section seven and 12 and, you know, his medical rights overrode their rights as to punish and therefore no victim can be found. And then there's no mens rea. So the court, of course, stayed the charge right in front of the guy. He just shat himself. He, I, he didn't pay me nothing. I just, I, and I sat all night doing it for the guy because what am I going to do, right? Like, I'm going to jail, Brian. You're going to help me or not? Well, of, of course I'm not going to not. In fact, I, got a, I have a whole bunch of reference letters from people that did the same thing to me. One guy with had had HIV cancer and a bunch of hepatitis. He was facing, you know, life in it was a seventy seventh conviction for drugs. And I said, you know, just let me help you chart a challenge. Your rights here, and I, I promise you, you're not going to get convicted. And he won a total dismissal under the Winchester precedent, the first real Supreme wow. Court dismissal. You know, and I and that really upset a lot of lawyers, right? Because this is way after I've been sort of told I'm not supposed to practice law and here I am winning huge cases, you know, and they're of course going to the media saying, Brian just saved my life, my family's life. So all these lawyers are just like, oh, fucking get him, man. He's not, I know it sounds pathetic to us because I'm not even charging for this stuff. Like, what do you care? Like, just because I don't lose, is that the real issue or is it? Because I can't sit they there and let like someone go to money. jail for a victimless crime. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I, and I don't think I ever no, will sir. be able to. No, sir. No, sir. So, so um, when did you start growing cannabis? <sighs> I'd say about mid-90s for sure. I started really doing okay. it. And then you, then you started at a church? So Holy Smoke, and then you started holy smoke a, a idea didn't come yeah. to about... Uh, 2001 I came up well shouldn't say that 99 I sort of came up with the idea of the holy smoke society I really hadn't figured out a proper platform for it I wanted to use the word holy smoke because I know everyone is just so name recognizable but I hadn't come up with the model yet because they were still harassing and busting different compassion club dispensary models and I didn't want to be part of okay. the, the uh, me or my patients I didn't want to be part of of uh, 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 you know the collateral damage and I wasn't willing to do that so yeah. that's why I was so adamant about learning the criminal law and constitutional law so well that's nice. why I took constitutional nice. law in law school because I felt I, I felt if I don't know this to that level 
my model could be faulty under case law and right. I could endanger right. myself and other patients, which it, it, it is not, it's not a joke here. It could, you know, it's, it's like messing. It's like, it's like knowing that, 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 you know, Jim Crow laws are coming and not like, and keeping it a secret, you know, it's like, that's, that's right. handmaidening of prohibition of rights. And that's what's going on yeah. every day with, with cannabis rights and other sacred plants and medicinal plant rights. That's going on every single yeah. day to the few of us that know so much. We, that's why they, they, they target us. So I, so by two, as, as I, you know, by about 1999, I started doing a few nice research gardens and genetic gardens. And I was really, the media was starting to catch on to me. And, you know, by 2000, um, the, well, no, before then I, uh, so let me back up. So around 1998, 99, uh, a member of mine, Trudy Radloff, uh, MS patient, um, basically had, you know, was, was having real difficulties with her petty malls and almost grand malls all the time. And I, I, uh -huh. you know, I, so, okay. So I start getting, I start, I start, you know, I start helping her like all and in the media and everything. So the local RCMP decide, oh, well, let's go fuck with them then fuck with her. So they just show up there one day when I'm not around and, and go into her home, no knock warrant claiming they're looking for a friend of her son's or whatever. And of course, she can't move very well out of her wheelchair. And there's her bag of weed on the table, and you know Jesus. she can't do nothing. And they just go, "Oh, we'll just take that." And she, you know, she, oh, as you can imagine, she tried everything she could to throw herself at them. And uh, anyway, so right. I, I, you know, within the the next twelve hours, her son is texting me. She's in the hospital having a full blown grand mal. Can you do something? Can you help my mom, oh, please? And uh, okay, and I had some weed that was about forty percent cannabinoid profiled, one joint, so it was close to a, doing a dab. And I and I got a couple other members of Holy Smoke, and I said, guys, we're going to go into the ER. And they had her tied like this, right on the gurney. Oh, and Jesus. I said, okay, guys, we're going to go into the ER. As soon as we find where room she's in, we're going to light up the joints, and we're just going to long as fast as we can. <laughs> And, and until the security, you know, nice. attack and, and hurt us. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we're going to do. And they're all like, oh, fuck, Brian, are you nuts? I'm like, okay. well, she's going to die. Are you willing to let Trudy die? If you guys are willing to, then don't come. Because I'm not. I, I have to do this for her. I don't have a choice. So we did. And we went into the, we snuck in through the, the ambulance thing. This is, you know, this is like, like I said, the late 90s. And we really didn't have top line security at hospitals yeah. yet. So we snuck in through the ambulance door. And we just went through the, it was like the curtain stuff still, curtain, curtain, looking for her. And that's when we found her, like I said, tied on the gurney, one one hand uh -huh. tied here, one tied here, and the thing around. And she just, she just given her, right? And I just sort of whisper, like, come on, we all go in, close the curtain, we get the lighters all out. Everybody ready? Three, two, one. And we're just giving her, giving her, and you know, you can just imagine the smoke billowing out in the fucking in the ER everywhere else. And so, you know, security came running in, and I and I immediately said, I'm a reverend, and I, I was ordained. I, I was ordained since '99, by the way. I'm I'm an ordained minister. Okay. I'm a man of God. Do not touch me. This is my congregationalist, and I have to save her life. If you assault me, you will be charged for assault. And so they didn't touch me. But they did assault the shit out of my two other people that came with me, and cops were called, and they got thrown in the cruiser. I didn't. 
Oh no! And while we're standing out there, and the cops are, you know, harassing me, and got my other two members in the car. Out through the ER emergency ambulance door comes a walk-in Trudy. Where's Brian? Wow! I need some more marijuana right now. So what I had done to her had stopped her seizure enough that she was lucid. And she came to. Wow. And so the hospital and the media and all was all every, all there filming all this, please. And and they said, okay, we're not she can't smoke it on the grounds. I said, fine. I will carry her around the sidewalk and we'll do it. They said, you can't sit at one spot. I said, fine, I'll I'll carry her. So I put her on and wow. I just fire fireman carried her and we started down on the sidewalk wow. around. And very soon. I'm not carrying her anymore, and very soon she's by the wow. second joint. She's skipping and woo, and, wow. and the media is filming all this, going, "What the fuck is going on?" This right. is in the '90s, right? right? And so that's when I sort of people yeah. sort of went, "Oh, who is this holy smoke guy? What the fuck is this?" And uh, and right. they let us all go. No one got charged, obviously. And um, um, yeah, that was so. That's sort of how I broke the scene. Wow. About a year later, the okay. federal government, I mean, by this point, I had the only, there was me, it was, there was only me, basically, the one in Vancouver, me, and one in Toronto doing medical cannabis in Canada, so three of us for the whole country, and uh, and they had, they were talking about doing a work, so another HIV cancer patient named Jim Wakeford had sued the government, demanding a program for medical access for patients, and he won, so the government's response was to create a, a, create a, a workshop. And they invited me and my members, right? Because we were the only medical place that was actually running at the time, patient to patient. So I get invited, and I, okay. I, I think I sent you some of the media on that. And I, 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 I yep. stay for three days. We do a, we do huge press releases, and you know, it, it, the, the government, the world didn't even couldn't believe it that Canada was a federal country was going to give out medical to someone, and they didn't. No one even knew what was going on, and we were at the forefront. You know, I, I had a case pending. We had already, I'd helped three or four other cases that had one. So the courts already were on our side. So we knew the government didn't, doesn't have a choice. We, they have to follow the courts. That's how it is here. It's not the government first, it's courts first. Because we don't have, yeah, that's how it, it's called case law. That's how it is in America too. But right. America also has precedent case law. We don't, you know, or, or new case law. We don't really have that. Our case law is always based on the previous case. Which is a little bit slower, oh. but you know, if you're smart enough, you can find other cases to. And I've been very effective at winning these constitutional challenge cases for a lot of people for many years, and for myself, I won many human rights cases. I won, you know, cases. I won. I won against the law societies that tried to injunct me. They tried to fine me for helping people for free, and the courts wouldn't give me a fine. They wouldn't do anything to me. They said, "Come on, it's it's free." You know, he's, he's held him free. How can we injunct him? For, and they're like, well, you know, he shouldn't be allowed unless he's at least a member of our society. So the court's like, okay, then fine. That's kind of how they were able to, you know. So, you know, so growing went really well. And I've, I've never really been hassled about growing because of the court order, right? So, you yeah. know, um, by yeah. around, you know, 2015, 2016, I was really sort of killing it with the churches. I had a, pl a model that I was going to do with 12 churches. Um, by around 2016, I had five going, one in Kelowna, one in, uh, one in uh, Chilliwack, one in Abbotsford, one in Langley, one in Aldergrove, one in Vancouver. And no one, I mean, they were all each one. So 
when I figured out the church model idea, like law school taught me that, I knew that it had to be a church because church is the separation from state. It's not about being, yes, yeah. I am a very spiritual person, but that's not why I'm doing this model. It's because civil rights movements I get it. It gives you legal, happen legal in protection. churches. Yeah. Right, we wouldn't have had yes. civil rights movement had it not been for churches in the '60s. In, we wouldn't have had right. civil rights movement had it not been for churches right. during World War II. We need churches in order to advance non-government policy, because it's always yeah. government policy that we're up against. Remember that war is yeah. politics with bloodshed, and politics is war yeah. without bloodshed. So we're also Bloodshed. because we're in a capitalist environment, we're always in a state of war which means we're always profit right. exploitation. That's the situation. And the ones of us that are not the 1% are the exploited for profit yeah. scenario. That's where we are stuck. Yes, and it doesn't, you know, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, where really where the equation goes. Um, capitalism for, for cancer is money driven. These illness, the, these pills are just, I mean, I, I have to do exactly what they say when they say, or they will cut me off from them. Um, there is no, I mean, I, unless, uh, unless I can come up with at least $5,000 a week. That's what the pills cost that I'm on. They're the most expensive chemo Jeez. drugs in the world. Jesus. Uh, the companies that sell, the company Gillette that makes the profit, uh, as I told you, they're, they're selling a case for $8 billion and they don't even, and it's not even like half a year's worth of their salaries 30 years ago. <laughs> they are making they have Jesus. turned capitalism into the best thing for them and the worst thing for us yeah. i mean that's how i mean that's how purdue started the the whole the whole um opium crisis opioid overdose crisis yeah. purdue put out oxycodone and got the dea to yep. deschedule it as a non-addictive substance and that marketing strategy is caused i mean i i just uh, yesterday uh, Narcan, someone, someone again. Uh, last week, three people died uh, within a half a block of me. I mean, I, I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with is just it is the true meek on the on the side of the road that need us the most, and and that's why I'm there. And yeah, it's dangerous. Look, 